1: But the problem with politics today is that it's discussed in a vacuum. Nobody brings up the history behind today's events. Well, I do. In my podcast, I take today's politics and smash them and bash them with a dose of history. Well, the politics come out different, and you come out with a better understanding. I'm Bruce Carlson. Join me when history beats up on politics. Veterans Day, also known as Armistice Day, is hardly a holiday that anyone talks about anymore. In fact, it's hardly a holiday at all. Outside of government employees, few people are off that day. And of those who are, even fewer participate in celebrations. Some of us know that it celebrates the end of World War I, called, of course, at the time, the Great War. And there are but a handful of veterans from that Great War alive, and as I speak these words, there may be none. Yet many of us know the phrase, the 11th month, the 11th day, the 11th hour. Armistice Day celebrates how World War I ended. And in a way it was a strange ending. No army was smashed to pieces, though all the armies were tired. No capital was captured. No enemy general held for ransom. And while it's true that a land and a civilian population was ravaged, it was actually on the winning side. World War I ended in an armistice, a negotiated halt to the fighting. Germany exhausted, Overwhelmed, facing fresh American forces, who had only seen less than a year fighting, stared down the barrel of an invasion of its own homeland and blinked. And so the peace deal was arranged. Soldiers on the field received the orders for armistice, but weren't even sure if they were going to get orders that would then reverse those orders. Mortars were being fired up until the faithful hour, and then no more. The end of World War I leads to a question, and that is, how do you end a war? With the current debate in Washington over Iraq, liberal doves, moderate and conservative hawks, but no one, if you believe their rhetoric anyway, is really a hawk. Everyone seems to want an end to the fighting, just a question of when and how. Leave now. Leave in a year. Leave when the UN comes in. Leave when a government is established. The somewhat scary part about American rhetoric on Iraq is that it is exactly where American political rhetoric was on Vietnam, in 1969. Everyone wanted to end the war, but the question was, how do you end it? In 1969, U.S. troop levels had peaked 543,400. 33,641 Americans had been killed at that point. Yet American involvement in the conflict would last four more years. The war itself would not end for six. 20,000 more U.S. soldiers would die. Here I must caution that Iraq is not Vietnam, though there are many resemblances. The forced commitment is a quarter what we had in Vietnam, and since there is a larger population in the United States now than in the 1960s, the proportionate percentage of U.S. males involved in the war is dwarfed by the utter at-home impact of Vietnam. Improved battlefield medicine and less of our troops there has meant that the casualties in Iraq are a fraction than those in Vietnam proportionate to the force sent there. There is no draft for Iraq, though with National Guard units not expecting such long-term service, regular army units extended, it is something less than a volunteer conflict. But yet the memory of Vietnam means that for most Americans, Iraq is Vietnam. And in terms of impact, the Iraq war has had a much faster decline in public support than the Vietnam War. In three years, the Iraq war is about as popular as the Vietnam War after eight. The beginning of the end for the Vietnam War was in the snows of New Hampshire in nineteen sixty eight. Eugene McCarthy, unknown senator for Wisconsin, with no national prospects, ran for president and came an extremely close and unprobable second to President Lyndon Johnson. Johnson saw the writing on the wall and announced peace talks and declined a second term. His taped phone calls would reveal that while he maintained a very pro-Vietnam War stance all along, privately, he may have known that his administration's war strategy could not work, that South Vietnam could not be held, no matter what the U.S. force commitment was. We're left to speculate on what would have happened if Lyndon Johnson stayed in office, or even if his Designated successor Vice President Hubert Humphrey had been in office. It's likely either one would have pursued peace talks with vigor. It's possible that as they were known quantities without a need to prove anything and would have been fresh from a reelection and reconfirmation of their party's lock on power, they might have made 1969 the last year of the Vietnam War. This seems very evident in the case of Hubert Humphrey who had announced a withdrawal plan right before the election. But seems is the word. This is speculation and not history. It's also possible that these Democrats would have felt pressure and taken a narrow win as a close call than afraid to do anything in terms of Vietnam policy. In 1968, the Lincoln quote, power phrase that voters don't choose to swap horses while crossing streams, in other words, voters will not change administrations during war, proved somewhat untrue. While the president wasn't running, his party and his designated successor did indeed lose. And Richard Nixon, the Republican candidate, offered voters something different campaigned on a pledge of peace with honor. Nixon narrowly won the election over a Democratic Party torn by hawks and doves. In his inaugural speech, he said, the greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. So was Richard Nixon responsible for ending Vietnam? It seems pretty clear that if all forces were working in Richard Nixon's control, the Vietnam War would have ended probably in his first year as president. That having not happened, it seems that Nixon abandoned his desire for a quick end. In May of 1969, in his first televised address as president on Vietnam, Nixon attempts to negotiate with Hanoi over the TV. He proposes a very simple peace plan that both America and North Vietnam simultaneously pull out of South Vietnam. Uh, the offer, of course, is rejected by Hanoi. That having failed, Nixon then attempts to negotiate by mail, sends a letter through a French emissary to Ho Chi Minh, urging him to settle the war, while at the same time threatening to resume bombing if peace talks remain stalled. Hanoi responds by repeating earlier demands for Viet Cong participation in a coalition government in South Vietnam. So his letter doesn't work. Then in August of 1969, he opts for the in-person approach, and he sends Henry Kissinger to begin secret peace negotiations at a Paris apartment through a French intermediary. And Nixon starts pulling out troops, 800 immediately upon taking office, 115,000 by the end of 1969. By 1970, the force in Vietnam is nearly cut in half, though there's still 280,000 troops there. By 1971, 156,000. Nixon is reducing the force so that by 1971, we have in Vietnam the force that's in Iraq right now. Of course, given the politics at the time, such a troop reduction is probably too slow for most Americans. At this point, given up on the war, and there are, of course, all through 1969, 1970, 1971, huge demonstrations against the war. The negotiations sounded promising, but they go on for years and they never get anywhere. There's even uh, stories that they fought over what table they were going to meet at uh, before there was even any kind of negotiation. It was obvious that external factors were controlling the negotiation, and Nixon grew to realize this. In 1970, just as everyone is expecting Nixon to go on the path for peace, and come up with withdrawal plans, he stuns Americans by announcing U.S. and South Vietnamese incursions into Cambodia. Not for the purpose of expanding the war, he says, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam, winning the just peace we desire. Kissinger's getting nowhere with the negotiations, and Nixon is attempting to cut off the supply lines to the North Vietnamese. The announcement generates a tidal wave of protest by politicians, the press, students, professors, clergy members, business leaders. It is now Nixon's Vietnam War. But in many ways, his Cambodian adventure represents Nixon's approach. A step forward, a step back. From some Nixon aides, we learn that it's possible Nixon was engaging in what he called the "madman Theory. And he specifically told Kissinger to tell the Soviet Union and the North Vietnamese to call Nixon the mad bomber, to play a kind of good cop, bad cop. Nixon was a madman willing to do anything. He was willing to use the strongest possible force to win. There are no circumstances should they be aware of what he was going to do next. If indeed this was Nixon's thinking, it's not entirely plausible. After all, the North Vietnamese knew that there were anti-war protests in America, and average Americans were turning against the war. The North Vietnamese could accept nearly 3 million dead. How many could the U.S. accept? Nixon then tries the back doors. February 1972, he visits China, meets with Mao Zedong. His visit, of course, causes great concern in Hanoi that their wartime ally, China, might be inclined to agree to an unfavorable settlement for them. Almost all historians agree that Nixon's visit to China was a smart move, not only for setting us on an end to Vietnam, but also for winning the Cold War. In May, President Nixon, having visited China, now visits the Soviet Union and meets with Leonid Brezhnev. This visit also causes great concern in Hanoi. Nixon is now attempting negotiations to force them through the back door. In January of 1972, Nixon now announces a proposed eight-point peace plan for Vietnam, again on the TV and immediately reveals that Kissinger's been secretly negotiating with the North Vietnamese. This is the first time the public knows about it. Hanoi rejects Nixon's peace overture. In May, Nixon announces Operation Linebacker 1, the mining of North Vietnam's harbor, along with intensified bombings of road, bridges, and oil facilities. The name of the operation may reflect Nixon's affinity for college football. Of course, this Operation Linebacker brings international condemnation of the U.S., and ignites even more anti-war protests. And, of course, the Democrats, two months later, would nominate George McGovern, a completely anti-war candidate. McGovern's campaign is badly organized, badly run. The one issue that he has is Vietnam. On October 8, 1972, Henry Kissinger's meetings in Paris break their stalemate. And both sides agree to major concessions. The U.S. will allow North Vietnamese troops already in South Vietnam to remain there, and North Vietnam will drop its demand for removal of South Vietnam's government. Two weeks later, Nixon suspends Operation Linebacker after it had flown 40,000 sorties and dropped over 125,000 tons of bombs. Henry Kissinger holds a press briefing and declares, we believe peace is at hand. We believe that an agreement is in sight. The one issue that the Democrats have in the 1972 election is effectively gone. Voters going to the poll that November, pull the lever in great numbers for Nixon. To get South Vietnam to go along with the agreement, President Nixon promised the United States would provide financial and limited military support, really in, intending to mean in the form of airstrikes so that the South Vietnamese could continue to defend themselves. On January 15, 1973, President Nixon announced the suspension of offensive action against North Vietnam to be followed by a unilateral withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Vietnam. On January 27th, 1973, the Paris Peace Accords were signed. Henry Kissinger, along with his North Vietnamese counterpart in negotiation, win the Nobel Peace Prize. So it can be effectively argued that President Nixon ended the war in Vietnam. But did he end the war in Vietnam? Or did he simply get an acceptable, plausible excuse to withdraw? Historians debate this point, but it seems pretty clear an agreement that allowed North Vietnamese troops to remain in South Vietnam. And the only exchange is that the North Vietnamese government would not call for the destruction of the South Vietnamese government, but again, in terms of actual military force, North Vietnamese troops would still be in South Vietnam, that really seems on its face as an agreement that's merely designed to allow for American troops to withdraw. It sounds like a sham agreement, and if it was, and if it was, then troops could have been withdrawn at any time, but for a requirement of some form of perceived honor. And with Nixon's actions, he actually prolonged a war. On the other hand, it's clear that Nixon was a believer in the use of bombing to cripple an enemy. And with Operation Linebacker, they had you know, crippled the supply lines of the Viet Cong and, and stopped them from some of their offenses that they attempted in 1972. So it's also possible that Nixon did truly believe that he could merely support South Vietnam with money and bombing. At no time after January 1973... Was there any political will in the country which sent the kind of force back to Vietnam as we had in the 60s? In that sense, Richard Nixon may have fulfilled his pledge to be a peacemaker. On the other hand, one must bring themselves to the climate of the time. And virtually during Richard Nixon's entire presidency, there were anti-war protests, huge numbers of people hundreds of thousands surrounding the White House, cities all across the country. Politicians could not roam freely in the streets and have press conferences without being confronted by swarms of protesters. And it wasn't just a radical group among average Americans. The Vietnam War was not only considered wrong, a mistake, but even immoral by a majority of people during most of Nixon's presidency. Given that attitude among the voting public, Nixon's steps could be considered conservative, small, not matching the will of the people. One must think about, in judging Nixon, what a second-term Lyndon Johnson or a potential president, Hubert Humphrey, might have done had the election of 1968 come out differently. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right?, is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Mook on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep About the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So, check out what could go right wherever you listen to podcasts. Would they have had the same desire to do the kind of zigzag that Nixon did? In other words, Some bombing, escalation here, negotiation here, negotiations not working, more escalation. Would they have needed to reach peace with honor, or could they just have had peace? Nixon, as a newly elected president, had something to prove. And it's possible that that was exploited by the North Vietnamese. So Nixon's actions were certainly not the only force ending Vietnam. In fact, even after the peace accords were signed, there was still a U.S. commitment to South Vietnam in the form of aid dollars and in the form of bombing and possibly in the form of some ground troops. A few ground troops in a country could turn into more ground troops. So there was a possible re-escalation. But in 1973, Nixon would face a great deal of political peril and the Watergate scandal. And so there is a theory that, in effect, Watergate ended Vietnam. It is true that the peace deal was signed before, but Watergate ended any possibility that the war would escalate again. In the end of 1974, Congress passed the Foreign Assistance Act to cut off all military funding to the South Vietnamese government and made unenforceable the peace terms negotiated by Nixon. In, at this point, President Ford's signing statement, we see the potential for a re-escalation in some form of Vietnam. As President Ford signs this bill, he says, In South Vietnam, we have consistently sought to assure the right of the Vietnamese people to determine their own futures, free from enemy interference. It would be tragic indeed if we endangered or even lost the project we've achieved. Gerald Ford pleaded in vain with Congress for additional military aid that might at least raise Saigon's morale. The members of Congress, like most of their constituents, were ready to wash their hands of a long and futile war. No, it simply wasn't possible in American politics in the early 1970s that a force of half a million could be sent back to Vietnam. But it is possible that there could have been a continued presence, maybe starting as training, building up a little bit of a support group, and maybe you'd have a presence somewhat of the size of the presence that you have in Korea today. So Congress, in their their act, cut off the president. No defense articles shall be furnished on a grant basis to any country at a cost in excess of three million, without in effect permission from Congress, notification and permission from Congress. And this wasn't the only restriction that Congress put on. In December 22, 1970, there was the Cooper-Church Amendment. It was an amendment to defense appropriation bills that forbade the use of ground forces in Laos or Cambodia. And Nixon complied with this. In 1971, a non-binding resolution passed the U.S. Senate urging the removal of all American troops from Vietnam by year's end. And as an additional realm of pressure coming somewhat from the congressional end, George McGovern ran Senator from South Dakota, forcing Nixon's hand a little bit in the election year, 1972. So to some extent, not only Nixon, but the Congress had a role in ending Vietnam. On April 30th, 1975, The presidential palace in Saigon was invaded by North Vietnamese troops. Really, not even a year and a half after the peace deal was signed, South Vietnam, as a separate country, was no more. President Ford reacted with words that one cannot imagine, say, a neoconservative politician saying today. These tragic events tragic as they are, portend neither the end of the world nor of America's leadership in the world. Some seem to feel that if we do not succeed in everything everywhere, then we've succeeded in nothing anywhere. I reject such polarized thinking. We can and should help others to help themselves. But the fate of responsible men and women everywhere and the final decision rests in their own hands. President Ford's comments are light years, light years away from the politics of many people, even in the Democratic Party, in talking about Iraq and involvement around the world today. In looking at the end of Vietnam, one can look at the actions of President Nixon. One can look at the Watergate scandal and the possibility that that scandal held in check any plans to rearm South Vietnam. One can look at the actions of an empowered Congress Very bravely going into the area of starting to cut military funding and attach strings to it. But in the end, it was American public opinion and a shift in attitudes from one of the domino theory. We let this fall. Others will fall with it. Communism will win. Two more of President Ford's. We help those who help themselves. The change in attitude ended the Vietnam War. History beats up on politics